Good morning. How are you all today? This is great to see you. I can't even believe that we're two weeks away from Christmas. I don't know how you're feeling about that, but it's just amazing how the time goes anymore. And so that, that prayer that I was praying, you know, God, slow me down. You know, slow the, the spinning down just because then uh, we have more time to kind of see between the notes and everything. But uh, here we are. There is a word um, that Frank has already asked me about on your inserts this morning. And is that a word that any of you have seen before? Some of you, I'm seeing a couple of nods here. Julie's nodding, yes. You know, Anavim, Anavim. I wanted to introduce you to this concept. Anavim is a is a foundational concept in in uh, in Judaism and to the Hebrew people, and yet it's one that we have so often not heard of here in the West. And as we're trying to prepare for Christmas, and we're looking at the, the real meaning of Christmas. You cannot separate the meaning of Christmas from this concept. And uh, it's something that we have talked about in the past, but I wanted to bring it up again today. Anavim is the plural of anav uh, in, in Hebrew, which literally, if you go back to the roots, means to bow down. This is what the roots mean. In, in context, the word means lowly. It means poor, marginalized. It means the oppressed. It is a people that is aware of their condition. You know, they are all these things, but they're aware of these things, right? And they're accepting of their position in life. They're not resentful. They're accepting. And because they're accepting of these conditions in life, their external condition becomes internalized in their hearts. And that sounds like a bad thing, but it's really not. Because To accept your condition of being powerless and being vulnerable and being dependent manifests as the humility that Jesus is always talking about. This fearless vulnerability that we have often talked about in here. To be aware of your dependency, to be aware of your powerlessness, and to rely on God, therefore, rather than on yourself, is the hallmark of the Anavim. And the Hebrews recognized that this condition, this attitude, was ideal in terms of a relationship with God. Psalm 37 says it perfectly here. And uh, 37 talks about, the Anavim shall inherit the land. Uh, There's one line in Psalm 37, the Anavim shall inherit the land. And then Jesus uses that and and takes it in a little different direction. The meek shall inherit the earth in his Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And so this theme is something that you will see over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This idea of these people. When Jesus talks about, in the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same idea here. The same idea of the anavim. Now, it's easier to achieve... Anavimness. Can I say that? <laughs> it's easier to be an anavim if you are physically poor, if you are physically oppressed, and these things are part of your life. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because the poor in spirit that Jesus is talking about is an Aramaic idiom that means an attitude of poverty even if you're rich. So even if you're rich, you still have this interior attitude of humility of vulnerability, of interdependence, and the sense of reliance on a power greater than yourself. 
I mean, if you're, those of you who are in the program, if you're hearing connections with the steps, by all means, go there in your mind because that's where they come from. This idea of anavim, this idea of developing this kind of attitude inside, right? So it's easier to achieve if you're materially poor, but it's not impossible to achieve, but it's much more difficult. That's why Jesus says, hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter kingdom. Because in order to enter kingdom, you have to become anavim. The, the attitude of the anavim is kingdom in, in Jesus' terminology here, in, in Jesus' teaching here. It is that attitude of spirit that creates the conditions, the quality of life that Jesus calls kingdom. And so all of this stuff is wrapped up very tightly together. Old Testament, New Testament, kingdom. All of this wrapped up in the ideal person whose external and internal circumstances match and mirror. The material wealth is immaterial <laughs> in a sense. It is, it is not the essence of it, but it plays a large part. If you notice, all the people that actually followed Jesus were the marginalized, were the disenfranchised, were the actual physical anavim. But they had a quality of spirit that allowed them to recognize in Jesus something that they needed and wanted to follow. There were a few of the rich who also did, but there weren't very many of them. The more we're invested in the status quo, the more things that we have, the more that we have worked for and achieved the more that life has blessed us with looks and, and talents and, and whatever, the more that we rely on ourselves, the more that we are self-reliant and we see ourselves as entitled to the things that we have earned. The Anavim are the opposite of that. Even if they have earned such things and such wealth, they still recognize that they don't control the outcomes. They still recognize that they are reliant on their God for everything that they have. Now here in the effect, we are continually talking about developing a contemplative lifestyle, a contemplative spirituality. And the contemplative way is the way of the anavim. Contemplative spirituality is the way of the anavim. Contemplative spirituality is all about, as Jesus said, sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor, to the anavim, <laughs> and become anavim yourself. Do you see how that works? You want to follow me? You want eternal life? Then take everything that you have and give it away to those who are already on Avim and become on Avim in your heart yourself. Now, that doesn't mean we physically need to give every material thing away, but it does mean that we need to let go of everything that keeps us from being able to really rely on God, to achieve that status to sell everything we have, to, to strip away all the things that, that cloud and, and, and distract and drive our focus anywhere but now, and then to quiet that down so that we can know the truth. What truth, you ask? <laughs> who we really are. I and mean, what's more important for us to know than who we really are? The question of identity is what the spiritual life is going to show us if we take this approach, Jesus is saying. If we can quiet down, we can find out who we are. And who we really are is on a theme. Our ego doesn't like that. Our ego creates all the distractions and creates illusions for itself so that we can think that we're masters of our own destiny. 
But it is just illusion. Look what Richard Rohr writes. Actually, he is um, channeling Brendan Manning. He's quoting Brendan Manning here in your... uh, I think uh, Brendan's going to put it up. Humility and honesty are really the same thing. Hear that again. Humility and honesty are really the same thing. A humble person is simply a brutally honest person about the whole truth. You and I came along a few years ago, and we're going to be gone in a few years. The only honest response to life is a humble one. Alcoholics Anonymous offers a classic definition of humility. You like this? Stark, raving honesty. I love that. Stark, raving honesty. Honesty and humility being the same thing. Who we really are, are anavim. Who we really are, are those who cannot give ourselves the things that we need. They have to be gifted to us. Who we are, are vulnerable, dependent, and powerless. Whether we recognize it or not, that's who we really are. We don't want to admit it. We fight it like the devil. You know, We create all the illusions and, and all the markers of self-reliance, and we build up our wealth, and we build up our fame, and we build up all of these things in order to mask and put away the anavimness of our actual identity. But here's its catch. We cannot be present to God, and we can't be present to each other until we realize and accept who we really are. As long as we have a disguise, as long as we have a mask, as long as we have a projection, that's as far as we get in terms of relating to another. To drop that makes us open. To drop that makes us aware of who we really are. And this radical honesty with ourselves is always and only the result of stripping away any illusion. Now, that can be done by life circumstances. Sometimes life steps in and strips away our illusions for us. And if we wait long enough and go long enough without that stripping away, then old age is going to do it and ultimately death is going to do it. But hopefully we get a little more time than that to be able to live as Anavim, which is living in the quality of life that Jesus calls kingdom. But if we don't wait for life circumstances, we can be intentional about this. And that's what contemplative spirituality is all about. We can intentionally start to strip away and quiet down and remove the illusions that are hiding who we really are. Take a look at Psalm 131. This is the third shortest psalm in the entire book of Psalms. 150 psalms, this is the third shortest. That's the whole thing right there. That's it. But it's packed with four steps that we can take to intentionally start to strip away the illusions and find our inner anavim, right? Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Did you catch them? Four injunctions, four steps to removing the illusions of our life. What are they? I do not involve myself in great matters. Two, 
I do not involve myself in things too difficult for me. Three, I have composed and quieted my soul. And four, hope in the Lord. You see what's going on here? The, the whole thing is laid bare here. Remember when Jesus went into the wilderness? He had three temptations that he had to face. And the three, if, you, if you're paying attention to Jewish numerology, the, 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 sim, the symbol system of numbers is really important. Three is the perfect number. It doesn't mean that there were only three temptations. It means that this is the fullness of all the temptations. This is, this is the whole enchilada of what he had to accomplish in his time in the wilderness. And as he was toning stones into bread, or as he was asked to tone stones into bread, as he was asked to bow down before the adversary so that he could gain control over the kingdoms of the world, as he was asked to take himself up and throw himself down from the facade of the temple and then be borne up by angels, Henry Nouwen has a perfect way of stating that these three are our need to be relevant, our need to be powerful, and our need to be spectacular. Those three form the basic of human drives that are always needed for the ego to be able to maintain the illusion that we are self-reliant, that we can do this all on our own. But to let go of those things. And look at that. This is exactly what's happened. To not involve myself in great matters or things that are too difficult for me. That's to let go of relevance, to let go of power. Compose in quieting my soul and to hope in the Lord to let go of the need for fame. All of these things, this is the process. This is the contemplative journey to bring ourselves full circle. This four-part instruction in the way of the Anavim, this way to this stark, raving honesty that Brennan Manning talks about, is all about accepting our limitations as human beings, to quiet down, to strip away the illusions, and to begin to rely on God. This is Jesus' entire message. This is what he's talking about. The way of Jesus is this way. This way of becoming so present to God and to each other that nothing stands between us. Nothing filters between us. And that quality of life is open to us. This is Jesus' message, the way of anavim, the way of humility, the way of of, of honesty. Now, how early did Jesus start teaching it? There's a question. We say, oh, when he was 30, you know, when he came back from the wilderness and started his public ministry. Well, I'm going to beg to differ. And let's take a look and see how early Jesus may have started really teaching this way of the Anavim. Let's take a look at Luke 2, starting right at verse 1. There are only two places in the entire Bible that say anything about Jesus' infancy. This is the one that actually tells us the story of Jesus' birth. The only place we get anything about Jesus' birth because Matthew 2 starts after Jesus is born with the Magi. And that's the only place we get any information about the Magi. Those two give us the birth narratives because Mark and and John have nothing. But look what Luke has to say. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea Judea, and unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them 
in the inn. And there was in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord showed round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which is which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they, all that they heard, and all they that heard, wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is the one time a year that you're going to hear King James out of me, but it just doesn't work anywhere else. You know, it's got to be King James. That's it. That's all we know about Jesus' birth. But the smallest details here give us the biggest clues about what is really going on. What the evangelist is trying to get across to us about this birth story, about how Jesus came into this world, the start that he had that gave rise to the ministry that he had. The details in the story are not random. Details in the story are never random. Not a good story anyway. Did anyone see the movie Gladiator? You know, that's someone just watched it. Cool. You're going to be really, you're going to be right on it. The opening scene of that movie is really interesting to me. Now, the camera opens up and we're seeing the gladiator. We're seeing the lead character, stern face, full battle armor, you know, ready for a battle, looking out over the, the battlefield right before the battle. And he's got this you know, just steely gaze in, in, in his eyes and he's looking, you know, past the camera. And then all of a sudden something catches his eye and he looks and there's just a little robin sitting on a branch fluttering its wings. And he looks and, you know, we see his point of view and then he looks and his whole face changes. He opens up into this smile and his eyes twinkle just a little bit. And the bird flies away and he watches it go. And then he comes back and sees the battlefield and puts back on the mask. Just that tiny detail, just a bird flying and lighting in a tree right next to him told volumes about who it is that we're dealing with. This is not just some heartless general fighting battles. This is someone who's got so much going on that he would take the time to notice that bird, to let that bird transport him in that moment to another place. See, the details are so important. The tiniest details are so important. You could watch that movie and blow right past that scene. So now you've got to go back and watch it again and see what that does for establishing character. And, of course, the rest of the movie establishes more and more who he really is. The detail of a dog entering the room right now. See, that's a detail that we've got to pay attention to. See, we live by details, detail by detail. It's the details that make things come alive. 
If you've really been someplace, it's the details that will show you and will convey to somebody else that you are really there. See, I can tell you what it was like to be in Boston in the fall. I was there one time. I can tell you about the air temperature. I can tell you about how formal everyone was dressed. You know, the, the, the top coats and the scarves for the men and, and the, the, the dress of the women. I can tell you what the clam, not the clam chowder, the oyster stew tasted like at a, at a little pub near Faneuil Hall. I can tell you about the brownstones that were right next to gleaming skyscrapers and that mix of old and new. I can tell you every little detail. I can tell you what it's like to play baseball in the spring. I can tell you what it feels like when your hand sweats inside the glove. I can tell you about the smell of the leather. I can tell you what it feels like to have your cleats dig into the grass and hear that tearing sound, you know, as it, you know, goes in there. I can tell you what it feels like to get the solid crack of the bat when you address the ball or when the ball slaps into your glove in the field. I can tell you about those things because I was there down to the most intimate detail. I was talking to an an 89-year-old Indian doctor from India. And he was telling me his life story. And he was telling me about taking the train ride that he had to take in order to get to the port to come to the United States. And he was saying that he sat there and he had the paper. And he told me how in those days you took the paper and you folded it in half and you folded it in half again and you read that column and then you turned it this way and you turned it that way and he told me about this one on page 17, this one entry that caught his eye. See, it's those kind of details. In my mind, the theater was going. I could see him, you know, 60 years ago in that train in India with that newspaper because he was showing me all the details. The details are where we live. The details are what make things real. The details are what gives us information that we really need. So what are the details here in Luke 2 that is going to tell us something about Jesus' character, about Jesus' ministry, about what's really going on here? What is going on? The details in Luke 2, what are they? He was wrapped in cloths. And swaddling clothes is really not what is there. If you really translate that, he's wrapped in cloths. Not clothes, but cloths. Lying in a manger, and there's no room at the end. Those are the little details that we get in the first part of that story. Now we need to break this down a little bit and try to understand what's going on from from a real Hebrew point of view. So let's start with the inn. Because the inn is one of the staples of every Christmas play you've ever seen, right? The little kids, you've got to have an inn, you've got to have an innkeeper, and you have to have all that stuff in place. So there's an inn, there's an innkeeper, there's a stable, and all those images are really pretty wrong, okay? I'm sorry to tell you that. But if we're really going to look at what these words mean, and if we're going to look historically at what's going on at that time in Judea, we've got to reframe things. Now, a first century inn was nothing like what we think of. There was no Motel 6 back then. There was no Marriott or hotels. There were no inns as we think of them. An inn in the first century was really more like a truck stop. So think truck stop, if you've ever been to one of those, or a rest area, if you've ever gone to one of those. And so there were rough you know, structures to shelter people and to shelter animals against inclement weather. There were makeshift markets, there, for they could resupply. There was a place to eat, where they could eat. 
And, of course, there were brothels because you had to have that as well. But these were placed, these truck stops were placed where truck stops are placed, on the major caravan and trade routes that were going through the area. So that was where these inns actually existed. Now, in Aramaic, the word for this type of inn is khan. It's transliterated K-H-A-N. And it had all of these types of features to it. But that's not the word that's used here that's been translated as in. The word actually in the Greek is kataluma. And in Aramaic, the word is shera. Now, shera literally means, and this is always interesting to me, what the roots of the word mean. Shera literally means to loosen. That's the first meaning of shera, to loosen. But it also can mean to eat, and it also can mean to lodge. So if you think about how those meanings fit together, when you go to a place where you can actually unwind a little bit, you can loosen everything up. You can loosen your travel garb, you can loosen the, uh, the pack off of your animals, and you can eat and you can lodge. And so all of this was the idea of a shara, this idea of loosening and lodging and all of that. The poor Judean homes, and so probably, before I get there, before the, probably the best way to understand a shara is as a living space. Okay, it's where you can loosen up. It's where you can eat. It's where you can relax. It's where you can just be. All right. Now, in the context of Judean homes, poor Judean homes were only only had one room. Everybody lived in the same room. It had dirt floors, but what it also had was a raised platform built on the floor in one either corner or half of the of the floor space, and that was called the shera. That was called the. That was the place. That was the living space. The place where you could eat and the place where you could relax. There was a sitting area there and a place for you to eat and a place for you to sleep. The dirt floor was where the, the cooking went on. The dirt floor is where the animals were kept. And you have to think about animals in the house. Really, what's going on here? Think about subsistence culture. The domestic animals were survival to these people. The ox, the goat, the sheep, the chickens. Where were they going to put them, especially at night? Are you going to put them outside? You've only got one room. You put those animals outside, it's cold out there, they can get sick, they're unguarded, they can get stolen. The only thing you can do is bring them in. And so the animals went inside, this one room with everybody else, but on the dirt floor, right? And they had what they called a fatne in, in Greek or an urhi in, in Aramaic, which we have translated as manger, which was a feeding trough for the animals that would also be on that dirt section of the floor. And usually it was made of stone. It was just a stone block with a, a trough, you know, just gouged out of it. Or it could, be, um, it could be brick or it could be some, but it was usually not made of wood, even though most of the ones that we see are made of wood, but usually it was some sort of stonework. And that's where the animals, of course, would feed. Now, if the home was wealthier, if the people had a little more money, then they could have multiple rooms. And typically there was a second floor to wealthier Judean homes. And so the first floor was the floor for cooking and for eating. There was usually a courtyard that the house was built around. The courtyard could be used for the animals. The second floor was the shira. The second floor was the living space. That was where people went to loosen up, right? That's where they went to sit. That's where they went to sleep. And often there was a roof that they could do the same thing on too. But the second floor was this idea of a shira. Always still had to have a place for the animals. No matter how wealthy you were, you needed your animals. 
And so if the animals were kept in the courtyard, that was one thing. If the house had more space, sometimes these houses were built into the side of a hill. And so at the back wall against the hill, first floor, they would dig out a cave into the actual hillside, and that would become a stable for the animals to be put up at night or someplace on the first floor. So you're starting, I hope, to get the picture of what's actually going on here. Now, this tax decree goes out from the emperor. What Joseph is really doing is going back to the home of his ancestors, the home of the birth of his ancestors. Ancient life being what it is, everyone kind of intermarrying, you know, he was probably related to half the city in some way or another. Six degrees of separation didn't really apply. It was going to be a lot tighter than that. And so he was going to stay at the home of a relative there. Maybe a relative somewhat removed, maybe a relative he hadn't seen in a while, but it was still going to be a relative. And so the idea is, is he shows up with Mary, who is great with child, and Eastern hospitality being what it is, it was a demand on the host to have a living space, to have a shirah, a shirah as a guest room or as a guest living space for any traveler who came through. But this time, probably overwhelmed by all of the relatives coming over at once. Ever had that experience? Yeah. There was no room in the shirah. There was no room either in the upstairs or there was no room in the platform. Most likely this was a relative that had more means, but there was no room up there. And so they had to stay with the animals on the first floor or in the cave that was cut out, or whatever was, was uh, created for the animals in that particular space. Now, try to imagine the scene in a, first of all, a one-room Judean home. Just think about it. Think about the cacophony of sounds. Think about the smells. Think about the animal droppings. Think about the feed. Think about every the cooking, the smoke that's going up just through a hole in the roof. Think about oil lamps at night creating smoke of their own. The smells, the closeness of the people, the laughter, the, the voices. And even in the wealthier home where you have some separation from all of that, here's Joseph and Mary going down to be with the animals. It's still going to have all those smells, but at least it was warm and it was private. And so there was a blessing there. But it's a very different picture than the picture that we normally get. This shadah also is the same word that is used in both Luke and Mark when they're talking about the second floor room that Jesus used for the Last Supper. They literally rented someone's guest space. Their shadah on the second floor. So this sort of puts a connection of, we can start to look at what that was all about. All right? What's the next little detail there. Wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Two other details that we have. The lion in the manger is obvious. I mean, if you have a baby, what would be more natural than to put that baby? It's a natural crib, uh, this, this place for the, where the feed was. The lion in cloths, though, is an interesting one. For Hebrew newborns, what they first did was they cut the cord, they washed the baby, and they rubbed the baby in salt. Kind of sounds a little strange. But they didn't know anything about bacteria back then. But what they did know is that salt was a preservative and salt kept wounds from going bad. So they put salt in the wound. They didn't really know why. They just knew it worked, right? And they salted their meats and they salted their food to preserve it. And so the baby was rubbed in salt and they knew that it worked. And then they would wrap the baby tightly in strips of cloth, really tight, 
you know, it's kind of kind of look like a mummy a little bit there, strips of cloth just wrapped up, you know. I always thought that our, our babies, when we first saw them, that the, when the nurses would give us back was a little burrito baby, right? Because they'd wrap them up just as tight, try to get the baby feeling secure again and not just all out there in the, in the cold air. But that would be a typical treatment for a newborn Hebrew child. Nothing, nothing strange about that, nothing different about that. So what do these details tell us? What do these details tell us about the essential nature of Jesus' character and Jesus' ministry? The well, first thing they tell us is that Jesus and Jesus' family were on a beam. They were literally on a beam. They were humble. They were vulnerable. They were powerless. They were poor. Nobody made room for them in the Shaddai. They didn't show up and said, oh, here comes Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Uh, you guys, you go downstairs and we're going to make room for them up here. No. They, 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 no one made room for them. They put them down with the animals. In other words, they were treated like any poor relative would be treated. Nothing spectacular, nothing different. There are no illusions here. The relatives didn't have any illusions about the Holy Family. The Holy Family had no illusions about itself. They accepted whatever was given to them with gratitude. Because they were being provided for in a way that they couldn't provide for themselves. They accept their dependent position. They're grateful for God's provision through their relatives or through anyone who brings it to them. There is something called the Magnificat. Have anyone heard that term before? You know, it's really more of a Catholic thing, I think. But it is the Song of Mary, a canticle sometimes it's called of Mary in Luke 1 right after she's been told that she's going to bear Jesus and she accepts that burden because she's only engaged and to become pregnant while you're engaged, that was a death sentence. That was a capital offense. She could be stoned for that. But she accepts that in her typically unavim submissive way of accepting what God asks of her. And then she immediately goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is also pregnant with what's going to be John the Baptist, right? And after they greet each other, Mary goes into this song that is called the Magnificat. That is Latin for the first word. In The first word is my soul. Here it's going to say my soul exalts the Lord, but it's often my soul magnifies the Lord. The word there means to make greater, to amplify, to magnify. Magnificat means my soul magnifies. So Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations shall count, count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Do you hear the song of the Anavim in what she has said there? Right? Regard for the humble, the humble state of his bond slave. He has done mighty deeds with his army. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. 
but he has exalted those who were humble. Are you hearing Jesus ringing and echoing there? If you want to be first, be last. If you want to sit at the head of the table, sit at the foot of the table. If you want to be the leader, be the servant. It's the song of the Anavim all over again. And it's echoed in Joseph as well. Joseph, who is given this news that his espoused wife is pregnant, he had to be going absolutely insane about that one. And he had every right to haul her before the court and have her stoned, or at least to annul the marriage, if nothing else. But when he gets the information, he too accepts the position and moves on. We see this everywhere in the Holy Family. We see this in the people who followed Jesus. So what is this Christmas story trying to tell us? What is the story trying to show us for our lives? Only the people, let me put it this way, only people who can accept, love, revere, and value the poor among them, the Anavim, are other Anavim. Let me say that again because I'm not sure I said it right. Only Anavim are going to value other Anavim. Only Anavim are going to recognize the significance of other Anavim. It doesn't mean we have to be physically poor, but it has to mean that we have our, our hearts have turned in a different direction inwardly. That we can see and recognize value in someone that society has cast off, that society has marginalized, that society completely ignores, those who have become invisible in our society. What kind of heart still sees them? Anavim. We need to become Anavim in order to recognize the value of Anavim. The shepherds who come to Jesus are Anavim. They recognize who Jesus is. They recognize and follow God's direction and find. And when they find the baby, they recognize him and see who he is. They're already poor. They're already destitute. They're already marginalized. It was easier for them to be able to have that in their hearts because their outward life already reflected that. But think of the Magi now. See, this is the absolute genius of the Magi. They were externally the opposite of Anavim. They were rich. They were powerful. They had the king's ear. They were learned. They were wise. They understood the workings of the heavens. They could see things moving over generations and over centuries. But inwardly, they followed the star. Inwardly, they took this dangerous long journey through two empires to find what? An abjectly poor infant in the stall with the animals in the feeding trough and yet still recognize he is the king that we have been seeking. Only Anavim can recognize the value of the Anavim. What the Christmas story is saying is that Jesus' message begins at birth. Jesus began teaching us about the nature of the relationship with his father, about the nature of the character of his father through himself through the way that he came into the world, through the people that recognized who he was in those moments. Who do we admire? Think about that. Who do you admire? 
Who do you look up to? Who are your heroes? By and large, they're going to be beautiful people, right? They seem to be anyway. Powerful people, talented people, people with lots of influence, people head and shoulders above the rest. And if those are the people that we admire, then we're going to tend to see Jesus in exactly the same way. He's going to be beautiful people. He's going to be tall. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to be powerful. Now, we give a nod to him being poor, but really, what is our image of Jesus? And beyond that, what is our image of Father God? If that's what we really value, how can it not be carried on through the people that we cannot see or the God that remains unseen? And if that's what we're looking for, if we have not truly become anavim in our hearts, we will walk right past Jesus as one of those invisible parts of our society on the quest to find the Jesus that our egoic mind suggests, that matches with our illusions of ourselves. This is what Jesus is trying to help us with, starting right here in the birth narratives and moving through his entire ministry. Can you strip that away? Can you see that this is illusion and then work to systematically deconstruct all that you have built up through your life so that you can really see this is the contemplative way. This is what it's all about. The silence, the solitude is that which helps us to dissipate the illusions the experience of this stark, raving honesty that finally shows us who we really are. This is Jesus' way. This is the contemplative way. So that however talented that you may really be, whatever wealth that you do have, however hardworking that you have been to build up what you may have in your life, that you can still see that who you really are is still this vulnerable child, this Talia, Child and bondservant, a willing submission to the providence of God. With the inability to guarantee any outcomes, no matter how hard you work, to realize all of this keeps us small enough to fit through the eye of the needle like that camel and become a wealthy person who can still see who Jesus really is. Every Christmas has become more and more tradition for me to read a story. I read one last week, and I almost didn't get through it. I don't think I've ever gotten through this one without getting a little choked up. So I'm going to try it again and see if I can get through it this time. As I'm reading this story, think about the Anavim. Think about Jesus as he's presenting. Think about his family. Think about those who could recognize Jesus and see if this illustrates. It's called Trouble at the Inn. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the Nativity Play has slipped into the realm of legend. But the old-timers who were in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year, and in the second grade, though he should have been in the fourth Most people in the town knew that he had difficulty in keeping up. He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than him. Though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation if the uncoordinated Wally asked to play ball with them. Most often they'd find a way to keep him off the field, but Wally would hang around anyway, not sulking, 
just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling one, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes if the older boys chased the younger ones away, it would always be Wally who'd say, Can't they stay? They're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with the flute in the Christmas pageant that year. But the play's director, Miss Lombard, assigned him to a more important role. After all, she reasoned, the innkeeper did not have too many lines, and Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that at the usual large partisan audience gathered for the town's yuletide extravaganza of the staffs and the creches, of beards, crowns, halos, and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace Perling. They said later that he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such fascination that from time to time Miss Lombard had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then the time came when Joseph appeared, slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there waiting. What do you want, Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we have asked everywhere in vain. We have traveled far and are very weary. There is no room in this inn for you. Wally looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife Mary. She's heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She's so tired. Now, for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone, the prompter whispered from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically, be gone. And Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head upon his shoulder. (laughs) And the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. While he stood there in the doorway watching the forlorn couple, His mouth was open, his brow creased with concern, his eyes filling unmistakably with tears. Don't go, Joseph, Wally cried out. Bring Mary back. And Wallace Perling's face grew into a bright smile. You can have my room. (sighs) Some people in town thought that the pageant had been ruined. I don't know, how do you recover from that? Yet there were others, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. This is the story of a perfect Anavim. Do you see? All the elements are there. Now maybe Wally didn't have a choice in being who he was because of his condition. But there were those in the town who were enough like Wally that they recognized Jesus in him. And for them, it was the most Christmas of all Christmases. We should all have that kind of Christmas this year. Let's pray. Father, this has been a morning. Thank you for this morning.
Father, who you are is so difficult for us. We are asked to imagine you as the God of the universe who called everything into being, and yet at the same time to experience you intimately as our friend, and then finally to recognize you as a humble, unassuming God who washes our feet and serves us. This is really difficult, Father. Help us with this. Help us to begin just the first stages of breaking down that illusion of who we always thought you were or who we were taught that you were and to move into the direct experience of who you really are and help us to break down inside the things that we value if they contradict what you value so that we begin to see you as you really are. That this Christmas would be a huge step forward to seeing you, real you, the humble you, the fearlessly vulnerable you, so that we can begin recreating that in our own hearts. Thank you for all of this, Lord. Thank you for everything that you give us to get us along this journey, this path home to you. And we do want to come home to you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.